Hello and welcome to a new podcast from The Lancet. I'm Helen Frankish, Executive Editor, and today we're talking about stroke because we're publishing a series of three papers on stroke in the October 6th issue of The Lancet in advance of the World Stroke Congress in Montreal, where we're presenting the papers in a session on October the 18th. Joining me on the line from Beijing to discuss the series is Craig Anderson, Professor of Neurology and Epidemiology at the University of New South Wales in Sydney and Executive Director of the George Institute of Global Health in Beijing. Craig, thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you on the line. Thanks, Helen. I'm very happy to talk to the series. Stroke, of course, is a huge global problem. It's the third leading cause of death worldwide and a major cause of disability. Craig, perhaps you could just start by giving us a bit of background about ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke and their epidemiology in different settings. A very pivotal landmark series of studies is called the Global Burden of Disease Study, which quantified the number of cases of stroke that that occur each year, and it's about 20 million new events. So it's it's an enormous problem, and most of those events occur, as you can imagine, in the developing parts of the world where there's large populations who are at very high risk of stroke due to dietary factors and hypertension and various other risk factors that are occurring due to various changes in their lifestyle and and demography. The major cause of stroke is ischemic, that's a blockage of a blood vessel in the brain and that overall accounts for about 80% of strokes. Another 15% overall are bleed within the substance, the tissue of the brain, intracerebral haemorrhage, and 5% are due to a rupture of a blister of a blood vessel in the brain, that's called subarachnoid hemorrhage. Those overall proportions, though, vary considerably around the world. For example, in Asian populations, the proportion of bleeds, bleeds, intracerebral hemorrhage, can be a third or even up to a half of all strokes. The reasons for that are not entirely clear, but it does seem to be related to a greater relationship between high blood pressure and and the risk of intracerebral haemorrhage in those particular patient groups. But we also see a higher rate of intracerebral haemorrhage in black Africans and Hispanics. So it's not just a genetic racial cause, it's obviously related to background hypertension issues within the population. Intracerebral haemorrhage is the most serious and it's the least treated. It's a very dramatic condition when the the brain is not very forgiving when it receives a, a high pressure impulse of blood within it and we, we don't really have effective um, treatments to tamponade that bleed and despite our best efforts for surgery, we don't really know exactly how to use surgery in the most effective manner. So it's it's been quite quite challenging, intracerebral haemorrhage. For ischemic stroke, we know a lot more and there's been major advances over the, the last 20 years in both the treatment and prevention of ischemic stroke. Most particular in the last three to four years with the advent of very effective devices. We've been able to get in very early to remove the clot in a selected proportion of patients who have um, a blockage in one of the larger, more proximal vessels within the brain. And and that's really revolutionised the way in which we uh, manage ischemic stroke. And then the final category, subarachnoid hemorrhage, the blister, that 
generally is the province of neurosurgical management because it invariably requires um, early surgery to clip. That's where you put a little device around the neck of the aneurysm or coiling. That's when you go up through the blood vessel into the brain and put a little coil within the blister which clots and sort of acts like a bit of cement within the blister to obviously stop further bleeding and improve the recovery and the whole management of the patient who has a subarachnoid hemorrhage requires very specialised care and a team effort between neurosurgeons and uh, often intensive care unit too because the patients are critically unwell. So the series that Lancet uh, hosting we focus on ischemic stroke, intracerebral hemorrhage, and then a, a broad global perspective on the prevention of both. The first paper in the series focuses on acute ischemic stroke, specifically the diagnosis and acute management, and the use of imaging to help guide treatment decisions. Would you mind summarising the main points in this review? So the first one around ischemic stroke, we've had considerable advances over the last 20 years now where we have learnt through the conduct of randomised controlled trials and meta-analysis that patients can have improved recovery if their care is well coordinated within a particular geographical region of the hospital where you can focus specialised care, what we've called a stroke unit. And we've also shown that the use of a thrombolytic or clot-busting agent, tissue plasminogen activator or, or outerplase given intravenously very quickly can help dissolve the blockage and improve recovery despite having an offset of a bleeding risk. And we've learnt very much around the prevention of ischemic stroke both before the event occurs and then also in terms of secondary prevention. But what's really happened in the last few years is the recognition that if we can identify the brain that's at risk uh, of damage or infarction from the blockage, if we can identify those people where there's reversible tissue, a, a potential for recovery, then either administration of the, the clot-busting agent, outerplase, or clot retrieval, mechanical thrombectomy, where we can use a stent retriever or suction to uh, remove that clot very early, we can improve outcome. So up until very recently, all our clinical decisions were very much based on time, and that was a very short time interval of about four and a half hours from the onset of symptoms in people where there was a definite onset of symptoms. And about 20 of our patients will arrive at hospital because they've been found unwell without an ability to tell anyone when their neurological symptoms had uh, started and, and they would be excluded from, from treatment. So all of our decisions until recently were based on time. Now we've extended those decision-making, not only by working fast, obviously, and time, but using brain imaging to identify the at-risk brain tissue, which can allow us a broader time window, often now up to 24 hours, in selected patients where there is a clearly identified reversibility. The other thing around this now is this what we call tissue definition and the use of mechanical thrombectomy is how do we organise our stroke services to accommodate these highly technical treatment um, avenues 
and also the diagnostic approaches to allow more patients to receive the benefits of that. How do we reconfigure stroke care on a regional level? So I mentioned before that we learned about stroke units, coordinated care within the hospital. Now we're moving to regional stroke care. We're moving beyond the hospital walls in terms of how do we coordinate care at a regional level and that requires linkage between the ambulance and the hospital, between smaller hospitals and a major hospital. How do we configure a 24-hour 7 delivery of care so that most people who potential to benefit from this uh, treatment can receive the treatment in a timely manner. So the first paper is really to set the scene of our current understanding of acute ischemic stroke, how current services are now working to be organised around imaging, time, performance parameters, regional levels and where we may go in the future to even extend that further and there's been a resurgence in what we've called neuroprotection which may now through medicines be able to enhance the recovery of patients who may receive uh, thrombectomy within the suitable time window because they still get some uh, complications of the treatment. They can get some distal clots and uh, small areas of ischemia. They can still get some problems with bleeding because they invariably have thrombolytic agents on board. And so it's really moving into the future now. How can we have high-performance stroke systems as well as where we should go in research to further enhance the potential for people to make a good recovery from what, what is really a very, can be very a de devastating condition with uh, high mortality and uh, disability rates. Moving on to the second review, which focuses on management of intracerebral haemorrhage. As you say in the review, Craig, this is a particularly complex and challenging illness to manage. Could you outline the main difficulties in terms of diagnosis and management, as well as the future directions for research into intracerebral haemorrhage? Yes, intracerebral haemorrhage is the Cinderella of uh, stroke. It's been um, the poor cousin. It's um, that way because it's very dramatic. It has a much higher mortality. The patients can die very quickly before your eyes. The doctors feel very unempowered to be able to intervene to improve the patient's chance of recovery. Even in patients who may survive the first few hours of intracerebral hemorrhage can languish in the hospital ward for days and weeks to eventually die of their pneumonia in it does create quite a feeling of nihilism amongst health professionals and, and being powerless to be able to intervene. Because it's less common in most Western situations where most of the stroke research has been conducted, it's been very difficult to accumulate patients quickly into clinical trials to study effects of treatments which, while potentially effective, the actual potency of the treatment is quite low. You've also got the complications of cooperation with neurosurgeons where a, a proportion of patients will go on generally to have an open craniotomy uh, or, or a burr hole through the brain to release the pressure of the, the hemorrhage in the brain. So we struggle because it has a high mortality and disability despite our efforts. It's been quite challenging to accumulate patients in adequate numbers in a timely manner to study treatments effectively and we 
haven't really understood the phases of injury in the brain quite well with intracerebral hemorrhage. We know the pressure effects of that accumulated blood in the brain are the main causes of death in the first hours or day, but there are toxic effects of the hematoma that occur in the subsequent several days or, or weeks afterwards, and a lot of swelling associated with that, and that's we, we understand now that, that, that a lot of that is inflammation as opposed to just pressure of swelling. And so it's been quite a challenging disease to study. But having said that, around the world, people have got together and have put a considerable amount of effort. And we really are now at, on the cusps of coming up with proven effective treatments. We've also been able to remove treatments that we thought were effective by studying them in a sophisticated manner. And we talk about that in the paper, that an active approach to care using stroke unit care and, and, and avoiding an early opt-out of, of active care in the patient by perhaps putting in not, not for resuscitation or early palliative care orders maybe prematurely may um, hasten the patient's demise rather than giving them the full potential for recovery. We've done a lot of work around early blood pressure control in the hypertensive patient. We've got a better understanding that that can improve recovery. We need more work to, to, to understand which patients may have the best potential for recovery. We're doing a lot of work around how best to approach surgery to remove blood from the ventricular system. There are the lakes in the brain. The brain doesn't like blood within it, but it doesn't like blood in the lakes as well. That, that can block off and cause hydrocephalus and, and how best to flush out the, the blood in a timely manner. And the new approach we call minimally invasive surgery is whether we can use sophisticated imaging to better map the position of a, of a catheter within the body of the blood may be able to reduce any injury related to cutting the brain or the surgery which may, can, may be able to release uh, the hematoma in an effective manner. I think intracerebral hemorrhage we've, we've learnt that uh, should be taken uh, seriously from the point of view that you can do something in terms of the management of some physiological variables. There's a lot more anticoagulation being used in the community now and how best to reverse the anticoagulation, but there's a lot more that we need to do in, in moving forward. And when you need several hundred and often several thousand patients in randomised controlled trials and intracerebral haemorrhage, the only way forward to gather the quality evidence that's needed to guide clinical practice is uh, for international cooperation and a partnership between the East and West to study intracerebral hemorrhage is um, really vital now because most of the intracerebral hemorrhage occurs in Asia and developing countries and we really need to work on how best to uh, have management strategies to treat that condition in those settings. Ultimately, of course, the best strategy is to stop people having strokes in the first place. And so the third paper in the series focuses on prevention. As you mentioned earlier, the burden of stroke is greatest in low and middle income countries, with about three quarters of all stroke deaths occurring in these settings. So, Craig, what are the main risk factors that need to be addressed to prevent stroke? And what needs to happen in order to work towards meeting the SDG target of reducing deaths from non-communicable diseases such as stroke by 2030? 
Yes, well, prevention is much better than cure and uh, that statement is particularly relevant for stroke. The funny thing is that we know very well what causes stroke and they are the common cardiovascular risk factors, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, cigarette smoking and the irregularity of the heart, which atrial fibrillation, which can cause clots to the brain, blockages from clots to the brain and we know that detection of atrial fibrillation and timely introduction of uh, anticoagulation can reduce the, the risk of uh, those clots forming. Now that being said, obviously many of the risk factors are not symptomatic. You, you often don't know you've got high blood pressure, you don't know you've got high cholesterol, you do obviously know if you're cigarette smoking and so it requires a concerted effort from the point of view of the medical profession in terms of screening and detection, case finding and implementing treatments to uh, preventative treatments for patients who are at risk, obviously efforts to reduce cigarette smoking but at a population level it requires broader policy change at a government level to control various factors that apply across the population and those are dietary and in particular um, high consumptions of salt and particularly in China where I'm working the population has one of the highest intakes of, of salt which is strongly linked to stroke and cardiovascular disease. It may not necessarily be working by blood pressure. It could also have other effects such as inflammation within the blood vessel walls, which um, make them prone to bleeding or clotting. So the approach taken in this article is, is not just to address the common risk factors. It's looking at a broader perspective from the point of view of lifestyle changes, healthy cities, policies that could be enacted at a governmental level that could have massive effects in terms of improving the health of the population. Also the topics that are, um, are looked at within the article is some innovative ways that can deliver low-cost, widely applicable preventative uh, approaches in low-resource settings. For example, a polypill approach where you package three or four agents which can prevent stroke, for example, two blood pressure pills, a statin for cholesterol reduction and aspirin. You encapsulate those generic agents within a single pill or capsule, uh, provides a, a, a low cost approach. The use of the pills together can have a synergetic effect and also improve adherence. So instead of taking four individual pills, putting them all together could, could be widely applicable. The other approach can be using digital health disease guidance systems which are a very good tool that can help lay workers or semi-skilled workers to take the place of uh, medical practitioners in low resource settings but if you had upskilled lay workers with some degree of simple training and give them some tools through a mobile phone you could deliver the care very effectively in low resource settings and obviously now with telemedicine approaches you could provide some specialist proctoring advice from a central office. In summary, the final uh, paper reaffirms the established risk factors for stroke and how we've got to target them to prevent stroke from occurring but it takes a much broader perspective in emphasising various policy directions around diet, healthy cities, 
anti-smoking, alcohol consumption um, that provides health benefits to the to the whole community and various initiatives that have been done at a non-governmental agency level such as the World Stroke Organisation providing training and service guideline directions that uh, health practitioners can work to uh, improve the delivery of high quality care in developing countries. It's a massive burden of stroke in the developing world. They're undergoing populations, they're undergoing the lifestyle changes that that we in the West has, have undergone over the last 50 years. That's rapid ageing, moving from uh, rural to, to uh, bigger urban areas and uh, a change in uh, diet and, 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 and lifestyle that puts them at high risk of uh, stroke. And we have an obligation to share our knowledge from the West to improve the health care of these large populations at uh, heavy risk of stroke. So, Craig, thanks so much for joining us to discuss the series. I'm really looking forward to hearing you and the other authors presenting the papers at the World Congress in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks very much for your time today. Thanks very much. And thanks for listening.